0: So last week, uh, hey, by the way, how are you? Everybody okay? All right. Last week, I I said to you that I wanted to introduce you uh, to two of the most important and influential people in the New Testament and help you to understand how their story has significantly shaped your own. And I said last week that the interesting thing about these two people is they're probably people that you're not very familiar with. And that says something quite beautiful about who God is. Our, Our God is a God who loves to use people to change history that so often the world very quickly forgets about. It's these small people, if you will, that God so often uses for his greatest glory. I I said last week that large doors so often swing on small little hinges. And every single person in this room is a, a small hinge, if you will, for Jesus. And there's so much that he wants to do in and through us. So last week I introduced you to the first of these characters. I introduced you to Ananias. Ananias, a person that's only mentioned once, not really mentioned again, a person who wasn't particularly powerful or had a big name, but someone God chose to go to a house in Damascus, lay his hands on a man called Saul, pray for him, see a miracle take place where he goes from blindness, receives sight, and Paul is transformed uh, sorry, Saul is transformed into Paul. And Ananias gets to do this. And, and I said last week that every single one of us in this room is an Ananias, that the same spirit that was on Ananias in that moment sits and lives inside of us, that our great call is to also lay hands on one another, speak truth over each other, pray for each other, and believe that by the Spirit of God, we would we would come alive together. And, and last week, as we did that, as I asked you to do that at every single service here, it was unbelievable what God did. I mean, honestly, it was one of, my, one of my most favorite Sundays that we've had here. I know you're not supposed to have a favorite Sunday, but it's like one of my favorite Sundays for years and years and years. As I saw everybody across our four services pray for people, like not us pray for you, you pray for you. And the power of the Spirit in the room doing that was so amazing. We got emails in this week from people who were testifying about healings that they'd experienced, testifying about, um, about salvation. Some people had shared with some people and they didn't know Jesus or they hadn't given their lives to Jesus and salvation took place during that time. I, I had one gentleman reach out to me and he said, you know, I'm a Korean and I come to the Vine and I didn't know there were any other Koreans here and I was a little bit nervous about praying for people because my English and my Cantonese is not very good and the guy sitting next to me was a Korean. So we chatted in Korean and pray together. And like I'm like, that's awesome. Um, there are quite a lot of Koreans in our church, I just want to say. There are. But anyway, so that was awesome. That was great. There was lots of testimonies like that. And, and here's the thing that I wanted to say. As excited as we were about last week, my heart is and my sense is that that was just the tip of the iceberg about what God wants to do amongst us. That there's actually so much more by the Spirit of God that he wants to do in a church that genuinely, spiritually cares for each other. And, and, and what we're going to do, you know, we're not going to force you to do that every week. I kind of forced you to do it last week because it was part of being an Ananias. But I'm not, we're not going to do that every week. But we want to kind of put a culture in here at the Vine... That when you come in on a Sunday, your expectation, your thinking is not, I'm coming in to sit in a chair, to sing some songs, to receive a message and then leave. No, your thinking is, I'm coming into church because I have something spiritually to contribute to the lives of the people around me. That I want to actually draw around them and I I want to be used by God to speak into someone's life. Because guess what? I want someone to speak into my life. I need someone to come and lay their hands on me and pray for me. And wouldn't it be amazing if every week at the Vine, we just paused to look at our neighbors and kind of take the courage to say, is there some way I can pray for you? And so what we saw last week, we're believing. We're not going to mandate it. We're not going to force you to do it. But I'm just believing as the Spirit of God stirs inside of us, you're going to have a hunger to say, I want more of that. And guess what? The power, the Spirit sits in you. And what I loved about last week is so many of you were able to do this. You were able to take a circumstance and a situation from somebody and connect it to something that God was doing in their life. And you were able to pray into that connection of a circumstance, a situation in the world, and God and his kingdom and the spirit. And bringing the world and the kingdom together is exactly what today is all about. I want to introduce you to the second of these characters that have literally changed the world and changed how we think about church. And again, is somebody that you're probably not very familiar with. And like last week, where that story of that individual, Ananias, sat within a bigger narrative of a more famous Christian, Paul. So today's hero, their story, her story... Sits within the larger narrative of another famous disciple in the New Testament, that of Peter. And in this story, we see Peter at a moment of his life that was the most tragic and most difficult. Peter had had some pretty big tragedies and some pretty difficult moments in his life throughout his life. He was one of those guys who sometimes had it right and sometimes had it wrong, who kind of opened his mouth and put his foot in it, and sometimes said great things, and sometimes said really weird things, you know. That was kind of Peter's journey with Jesus, you know, like, who are you, Lord? Then it was like, you're the Son of God. Then it was like, I deny you. I don't know who you are. Then it's distraught, back fishing. Then God meets him uh, with a fire on the beach and, and has breakfast with him in the resurrection. And then Peter is filled again with forgiveness, and he becomes the, the central rock of the early church. He stands before the... Sanhedrin, and he preaches the gospel. He's flogged, and he's beaten for it. But he says, I'm counted worthy of being persecuted for the gospel. And then at this time in the story, he's arrested, and he's placed in prison, and he's literally days away from his execution. I mean, this is about as hard as it gets for Peter. And the question the passage asks is, is anyone going to be able to help this man? Is anyone going to be able to save him? And large doors swing on very small hinges. I want to introduce you today to another small hinge who's going to blow your mind. This story is found in Acts chapter 12. It's perhaps my favorite story in the whole of Acts. And I said exactly that about Acts 9 last week. But I'm allowed to change my mind every week, okay? This is my favorite story in all of Acts. I love this one. All right. Uh, Acts 12, verse 1. Are you ready? Okay. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So, I tell you each week that Luke is a master storyteller. And each week as I'm preaching out of the Scriptures, I want to model for you what Bible study is like, how you can approach the Scriptures for yourself. And each week I say that the opening part of a passage is often the most critical to understand the broader narrative that's important for your interpretation of what happens. And here we see the exact same thing happening. So first of all, Luke, the storyteller, he tells us about Herod. Now, this is the different, this is not the same Herod as the Herod that was there at Jesus' birth, the one who ordered the genocide of all the children under two uh, in and around Bethlehem. This is actually, that's Herod's grandson, who's also called Herod, which is a bit confusing, but it's his grandson. And this Herod's interesting because he's Roman, but um, history tells us that he actually had some Jewish ancestry in him. So he was part Roman. And part Jewish, and in a way, the perfect person to govern Judea at this time. But because he was part Jewish, he had a certain tendency to want to please the Jews uh, in the area that he was serving. And so he had arrested uh, James. Now this is not James the brother of Jesus. Um, this is James, who's the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve. And, and, and this this James is arrested by Herod, and Herod puts him to death. It literally says here he was killed by the sword. Now that should make you stop and think. Because Roman governors, when they wanted to kill someone, their execution was on a cross, like what happened with Jesus. Crucifixion wasn't just for Jesus. It was the general way that the Romans kill people. But here in the text, this Roman governor doesn't use a crucifixion for James. He uses the sword. Now, the reason is, is because in the Jewish law of the first century, in the Midrash, if somebody was an apostate, they were allowed to be killed by stoning or by the sword. And what what Herod does in killing this James by the sword, he's sending a message to all of the Jewish people in the area. And he's saying, I agree with you, Christianity is wrong. I agree with you, we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And anybody who does is an apostate. And watch, I kill him with the sword to confirm to you that I agree that Christianity is wrong. Now, this pleased the Jews, so much so that Herod's on a roll. So he's like, well, who else can I arrest? Well, I'm going to arrest the most famous church leader in that moment. That was Peter. Now, Paul, we saw last week, has already had his conversion experience. But Paul's not yet released yet to be a leader in the church into the Greek Roman Empire. Peter is the central leader at this time. And so Herod doubles down. He arrests Peter. Now, it says here that he arrests him during the week of the festival of the unleavened bread. This is the same week that Jesus was arrested. It's the week of the celebration of the Passover. It's the week when they actually celebrated their release by Egypt from slavery by God's power into the promised land. It's a whole week that is to celebrate that God can liberate his people. And the irony of this story is Peter is arrested at the very week when they're celebrating liberation. Peter is incarcerated During the festival of liberation. And it's explained that way to help us to begin to kind of go, ooh, that doesn't seem right. There's something odd going on in this story right here. And the final thing Luke introduces us to is how Peter is guarded. He's not just guarded by one guard outside behind some locked doors. He is actually chained by two guards. So two guards are literally chained to his ankles. And then there are two other guards that are outside. And these four guards rotate all the time so that there is 24-hour surveillance of Peter. They do this because they believe that he's a flight risk, that he's going to try to escape. Which is ironic because that's about to happen, right? But in this moment, they're like, we're not sure if he's going to stick around. So we're going to make sure he does by chaining him literally to these guards and setting this all up. So everything is designed in the story right here for you to lean into it and go, what's going to happen next? Is there any hope at all for Peter? Verse 5 says this. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I love this. Luke says, you need to understand that there was hope in this situation. That although Peter was in prison, the church was gathered praying for him. The church was gathered praying for him, believing that their prayers mattered. Believing that prayer could change Peter's situation. Oh, he might be incarcerated during the festival of liberation, but don't give up hope. The church is alive. The church is on its knees. The church is praying for him. And there's this exciting sense that that the church is doing that. You need to know that there's power in a gathered church praying. And that's exactly what we're going to do on Tuesday evening at 730. I know, I know. None of you were planning to be there. But (laughs) this is important. 7.30 in this room or online, when a church prays, something changes in the atmosphere. God does something. He listens to the cries of his people. When his church is on its knees pleading, God responds. Luke describes it as the church earnestly praying for Peter. The word earnestly there is the exact same word that Luke uses for Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of the Gethsemane. Remember that moment where Jesus is crying out, Lord, if there's any other way, take the cross from me. But your will be done, not my will. And he's so anxious that he's literally sweating blood. Uh, Luke takes that same word and he says, that's what it was like for this church. They were gathered on their knees. And the word in Greek means to stretch forth. They were stretching forth like Jesus was. And they were probably praying, God, release release Peter from prison. Release him from the chains, but not our will, but your will be done. But if there's any way for him to be released, would you bring him back to us? Release him. We don't want him to die. They're stretching out. Here's the other crazy thing. The festival of unliving bread lasted for seven days. And Herod could not do a trial until the whole thing was finished. So for seven days, the church is crying out. Can you see a church of faith? Crying out, believing that they could change the scenario of Peter's life by stretching forth like in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, man, does our city need a few churches like that? I wonder whether we might rise up in this time of Hong Kong's great need, in this time of such change in our city, that we would be willing to get our knees dirty, stretch forth, and really pray. Seven thirty on Tuesday night. That's the last time I'm mentioning it. Okay, but I look forward to seeing everybody there. Does the prayer make a difference? Let's have a look. This, this whole sermon's not a plug for a Tuesday night. I promise. Verse 6 onwards. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quickly, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. I love this moment. Oh my goodness, this is so good. Can you imagine if you were this angel? This is your moment. Like you, you've you been an angel all your life. Like you've always wanted to be used by God for a powerful encounter in the world. And God has come and tapped you on the shoulder. Let's call him Angel Bob. God's come and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Angel Bob, this is your moment. I'm sending you down into a jail cell where Peter is. And you're going to show up and light's going to shine all around. And it's going to be this magic moment. And you're going to release Peter from prison. And you can imagine this angel. Wow, this is the best moment of my life. And Luke says, Peter's sleeping. Like passed out. Like, not just sleeping, sleeping so much that when the angel shows up, he has to strike him on his side to wake him up. This is the night before Peter should have gone to trial. The night before he's being sentenced to death, Peter's just like, I don't know about you, but I would be pacing around praying or doing something, right? Put yourself in the, in the I don't know if angels wore sandals, put yourself in the sandals of this angel for a moment. Imagine this, he's getting ready, right? And this is the moment, there's Peter, he's like, this is the moment. he's like, no! Ah! You know, like suddenly showing up, right? Peter's like... So the angel's like, well, that didn't quite go to plan. All right, I'm going to turn it up to 11 on the notch here. We're going to do this again. Ah! And the light flashes around, and he's completely oblivious to it. And so the angel goes up to him and said, psst, hey, psst, psst, come on, let's go. Hey, you, sh- sh- don't wait the guards. Come on, you, yes, you. Wait, why are you not waking? You're not... And he kicks him in the stomach. Literally, the Greek word means he strikes him in the stomach. You can imagine Peter going like, ooh, like this. Well, suddenly waking out of his deep sleep and seeing an angel. In fact, it's described here that he, that he thinks he's, he's seeing a vision. He doesn't really know that this is happening in reality. But, but the chains fall off his wrist. Notice what happens next. Verse 8 onwards. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him. So so Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing Really, was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and then came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Don't know how that happened, but the angel just left. Then Peter came to himself in that moment and said... Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. The, the, the angel leads him past one set of guards, past a second set of guards, and then they come to this thing called the Iron Gate. Now the Iron Gate was really important. This is the main prison in Jerusalem. The iron gate was a big, heavy, solid gate that had one purpose in mind: that was to keep the people who were in prison in prison. And keep the people who were in the city out of the prison. It was the gateway between those that were incarcerated to the freedom that was seen in the city. This has significant metaphorical punch to the story, this iron gate. And this iron gate, as Peter gets to it, opens up by itself. Miraculously by itself. So that Peter can walk straight through it. And when he gets one length of a street, the angel disappears, and he has this aha moment. He's like, wow, this really just did happen. And Peter says these incredible words. He says, I know now that God has sent an angel to deliver me from Herod's clutches. The word clutches there is a word that's found predominantly in the uh, Exodus narrative, where God releases by the Passover uh, Israel to be able to get out from Egypt's slavery. It's the word that was used a lot during the festival of unleavened bread. And Peter makes the connection in his freedom. He's like, I've experienced liberation. I've experienced a new exodus. I am now out of the clutches of Herod, and I am free. I think for Peter, the opening of the iron gate was his Red Sea parting moment. That moment in the Exodus story where the sea parted so they could get through and get away and go to safety. So the iron gate opening by itself was like the waters of the Red Sea passing and now Peter is free and he's standing on the street and he's like, I'm free! But then something dawns on him. He might be out of prison, but he's not yet out of danger. And he knows that probably at any moment now the guards are going to wake up The guard's going to work out what's happened. Any moment now, they're going to start running after him. And he suddenly starts to panic. And he thinks, well, what do I do? Where do I go? Where's safe for me? Where do I move to safety? And he decides, oh, there's that church, isn't there, that meets in Mary's house. He's got no idea that they're meeting, there, praying for him. But he decides he's going to go to Mary's house because that's a safe place. I I want you to see what happens next in the story. Verse 12. When this all dawned on him, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. This is where our small hinge comes into the story. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back in without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! Oh my goodness. Let me tell you a little bit about the small hinge called Rhoda. Rhoda is a Greek name. We don't know much about her in this story, but her name is Greek. It actually in the Greek means rose. So perhaps she was a, a young girl, perhaps she was kind of fragile and sort of peaceful like a rose. What we do know about her is her profession. She's described by Luke here as a servant girl in Mary's house. Mary was wealthy, had the largest home in Jerusalem, which is why they gathered there. Uh, Scholars believe that the home of Mary was where the Pentecost actually happened, where the Holy Spirit had fallen when they were gathered in the upper room. That's this very house. And in the narrative here, this woman is a servant girl of that house. In other words, this is a first century domestic worker. Her her duties and her job was to look after the house, was to clean it, was to prepare the food for the people that lived there, was to host the guests when they came in. That was who Rhoda is. If you're sitting in this room and you're a domestic worker, I hope this really encourages you. This is the Bible story where a domestic worker is the hero of the story. I hope that deeply encourages you if you're a domestic worker in this room. Rhoda is just like you. And because she's a servant girl in this house, her very job, the nature of that job meant that she had the ability to move between the outer courts of the house and the inner sanctum of the house. And here's the great thing. There's a church that's meeting in the inner sanctum and they're praying. And what are they praying for? They're praying for Peter to be released from prison and they're stretching forth. They're sweating blood. They're doing the whole thing. They've been doing it for days. And because they've been doing it for days, Rhoda, as a good servant girl, has heard their prayers she knows what they're praying for and in her duties she's going around and she's on the outer courts and suddenly she hears the door knocking she can hear it knocking because she's not so caught up in the inner sanctum of the religious activity i bet there was so much noise going on there that no one was going to hear the outside door rhoda's in the right position she hears the outside door she goes towards it and she recognizes peter's voice well of course she did Because she'd been around that house for ages. And Peter had been there. And Pentecost had happened there. And she knew Peter. And she knew his voice. She hears his voice. And suddenly she freaks out. She's so excited. She's so excited because she realizes that what they're praying for in that room is actually happened. That it's now standing here at the door. See, Rhoda is the one in the story who's able to connect what is happening in the prayer meeting to what is actually happening in the real world. It's Rhoda who does that. No one else. She's uniquely positioned to be between the two worlds and connect them together. And she's so excited about it, she's suddenly in a dilemma. What do I do? Do I open the door and let him in? Or do I tell them that he's there? Do I open? No, i got to tell them. And she runs back into the prayer meeting. And she says, guys, you can stop praying. The answer to the prayer is at the door. Woohoo!" hoo Everybody that's praying in the prayer meeting are like, whoa, whoa, just... Can you quiet down? Please, we're praying here. This is really important right now. Like, we're praying for something very important. We're praying for Peter's release. She's like, do you, do you realize that Peter's actually at the door? He's at the door. And, and then he just keep praying. And she keeps saying that he's at the door. And during that whole time, Peter's still at the door. <laughs> he's still outside in danger of being arrested again. He's not yet in safety. And he can't get into the house. Think about this for a second. This is the great irony of this story. It was actually much easier for Peter to get out of the doors of a prison than it was for him to get into the doors of a church. (laughs) Now that should say something to us. That should sober us. It should challenge us. Are we a church that makes entry difficult? Is it easier for God to liberate people in the world and harder for Him to actually get them to attend church? In our season of evangelism and discipleship here in 2022 at the Vine, are we in danger of of having closed doors, if you will? Not physically, per se, in the building, but specifically in the body of Christ. Do we close the doors of our hearts to certain groups of people that we think don't deserve to become Christians? Do we close our mind to the idea that certain types of people could become Christians? Do we shut the metaphorical doors of the body of Christ and make it more difficult for people to come and find fellowship and community here than it is for them to find grace in Christ Jesus. And I think if that is the case, we have to ask ourselves some pretty sobering questions. Have we put any barriers? Is there, let me put it this way, an iron gate, not just stopping the prison from the city, but stopping the city from the church and the church from the city? And if so, maybe we need to do something about it. Rhoda is pleading with the church to be aware that their prayer has answered. Let me, let me show you what happens next in the story. It says this. It says, you are out of your mind, they told her. <laughs> when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel then. You're out of your mind, they're saying. Would you just quiet down, woman? We're praying here. Like This is important church business. There's lots of church stuff happening here. This is religious activity. Just relax, okay? You're out of your mind. You're stupid. You haven't worked it out. You're just a servant girl. You don't have it all together. You're not a leader here. You haven't discerned it properly. Leave us alone is basically what they're saying to her. I wonder if any of you in this room have felt that from church leadership at some point in your life. Whether if I'm honest, leadership here at the vine or or leadership perhaps in other churches you've attended. Have you ever felt shut down by leadership? Have you ever felt like you're not valuable to them? Ever felt like you don't have a voice? That you're not as spiritual, you don't discern as well? That you, you, know, you just stay over there and let us religious people do our religious things? I wonder if you've ever felt that way in your family. Perhaps some of you in this room are the only Christians in your family. Have you ever felt ashamed? Have you ever felt like your family have said you're out of your mind that you believe that? I wonder if anyone in here feels like that in the workplace. Maybe your colleagues know that you're a Christian and they think that's a bit strange and a bit unusual. And they say, you know, who are you? You're out of your mind. But Rhoda doesn't give up. And I want you to know that you are not to give up. She keeps pleading with the church. Hey, he's there. He's there. So eventually they go, well, it must be his ghost because it can't physically be him. It can't really be the answer to our prayer. It can't really be that. So maybe Herod killed him early, and his angel is shown up at the door, banging on the door. That's what they think. And so they actually go. Notice this in the next verse. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands to them to be quiet and describe how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, and they said, and then, then he left for another place. They finally go with Roder to the outer course of the thing. They open the door and Peter is there. And the Bible says they're astonished. What are they astonished about? They're astonished that the thing that they were praying about has actually come to be. They're like, whoa, we were praying, but we didn't really think it was going to happen. <laughs> like, like we were excited, but you know, we didn't really think it was going to happen. But it's actually happened. They're astonished. And who is the one who is able to help them to see that the very thing that they were praying for has happened? It's not the church leadership. It's not the amazingly powerful spiritual people. Consider the people that were praying. These were most of the 12 were in that room. This is James, the brother of Jesus, was in that room. This was the significant senior leadership of the church. None of them actually believed the prayer was going to take place. The person who believed, who was positioned to know, who had the flexibility to understand what was happening in the house and also see what was happening in the world, was not church leadership. It was Rhoda. And this story teaches us something. Not only is it a story where a domestic worker is the hero, it's also a story where the church... The pastors are wrong. You should clap for that, that's a good thing for you. (laughs) That should excite you. The church leadership, the pastors were wrong. They're not the heroes here. And this sets up and changes something dramatically for the whole concept of what church is about. That it's actually not about the leaders. It's not about the pastors. They are there to serve you, love you. I I love my job. What a privilege it is to be a pastor. But church is not about me. It's not about my team. It's about you. You're the hero of the church story. You're Rhoda. Because you are the ones whose one foot is in the world and one foot is in church, and you can translate between the two of those things. You are the ones who are uniquely positioned to take the gospel from here and bring it into the world and take what God is doing in the world and communicate it to us in here. My job is to 100% serve you, love you, help you to be the best that you can be, teach you, pray for you, love you. That's my job. My feet are in the church, and I'm glad that God's given me that calling. Your calling, though, is to be like Rhoda, who can move between the two spheres and be able to translate the gospel into the world. That's who you are. And what we learned in this story is something very sobering. It's often easier for a miracle to happen than it is for it to be believed. The actual miracle of this miracle is the fact that it was believed. And why was it believed? Because Rhoda changed everything. Because I want you to see this. Before this moment, the church was praying earnestly, reaching forth, but they didn't really believe that it was going to happen. But I tell you what, from this moment forwards, the early church was dramatically changed. From this moment forward, I bet you everybody who was in that room that day praying, and everybody who saw Peter come in that door freed by the power of Jesus, that that faith level of that church completely changed. I bet you every single time they prayed after that, they actually believed that it was going to happen. That at that time, everything changed. And who changed it? The church leadership? No. Rhoda. Somebody that history tends to forget, completely changed the church. Completely gave you your story. If you're a Christian in this room, and if you haven't been called to be a part of the staff of a the church, then you're in full-time ministry like Rhoda was, with one foot in the camp of the church, one foot in the world, and uniquely positioned to do what I could never do translate between the two of those things and bring a testimony of the power of God in both of them. And I feel like if God's going to do anything in us in this season, in this important hour that we're in in Hong Kong and its history, we need to be Ananiases, Laying hands on one another. Speaking truth to each other. Praying for each other. Believing the best for each other. Raising each other up. And we need to be rotors. Planted in our schools. Planted in our workplaces. Planted in our families. Able to say, I'm proud to be here as well as I'm proud to be in the kingdom. And that there is no distinction between secular and sacred. That all of us together are a part of the kingdom of God. And my work has as much value and as much power as anything else. And I straddle the two and one. What a gift it is, because this is what church is all about. You're a rota, a servant in God's kingdom. May you firmly plant a foot so that you can always open doors for those on the outside to come into church. And may you always run into the religious activity and have the courage to speak what's happening in the world to the church. And when that takes place, I believe the body of Christ is truly equipped to be what it should be. It won't be equipped by me and the other pastors here. It will only be equipped as the road is a release. Run with that anointing. Plant your feet proudly where you are. Whatever job it is, whatever career you have, whatever sphere of influence you are planted in, you are there for a reason. Embrace it. Love it and see God's glory come out of it for His glory in Jesus' name. Everyone says, Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you, Father. I just want to thank you so much for all the roaders in this room. Father, we first of all think of our actual roaders, the domestic workers in this room, our Filipino brothers and sisters, Indonesian brothers and sisters that we love dearly. Father, we want to pray for them in this moment. Father, we ask that you would strengthen them and encourage them. So often their job is a thankless task. So often they're treated a little bit like how Rhoda is treated in this story. Father, we just pray for an anointing and a power upon them. We pray that they would be deeply encouraged by the hero that is Rhoda today. And that would inspire them in all the places that you've planted them, the homes of Hong Kong that you have planted them in, Lord. Many of those homes perhaps don't believe in you. And we pray that you would use these incredible domestic workers to represent your hands and feet to the people that they are planted within. And Father, we pray for all of us, each one of us a rota in our own ways. School teachers in this room, lawyers, policemen, politicians, People in marketing and backgrounds there, media, people in the entertainment world. So many different industries represented, of course, across our services. And Father, each one of them has been called by you to be like Rhoda, to be able to connect the world and the church and see them come together, to help the church not be a holy huddle that just forgets everything that's happening in the world and likely enables the kingdom of God to be glorified and testified in the world. And so, Father, I want to pray for release over these men and women. I want to ask that you would fill them with inspiration and passion. We thank you for Rhoda's story and how it's so much a part of ours now. Lord, would you forgive us where we do look at some things as sacred and some things as secular, where we haven't recognized that this world is yours, that in your death and resurrection, you brought everything under your feet that Paul would say we get to now pray to the name that is above every name. And that, Lord, Hong Kong is yours. China is yours. And Father, we just are so grateful that we have a King of kings and a Lord of lords who is in control. Father, I pray that you'd fill the church of this city with rotors, connected to your kingdom, seeing that kingdom in all places. And Father, if there's anyone here that feels devalued, anyone here who feels like either the church or others have said, you're out of your mind, Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, we pray that you would release us to be your hands and feet in every place that you put us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Everyone says, "Amen." amen. Amen, let's worship now together.